0: Socialites, and welcome back to the Social Studies Podcast, the podcast where we, you and I, study being social by being social. Just wanted to start off by saying thank you so much to everybody who has subscribed to Patreon. The Patreon is how we're keeping the podcast going. There are costs involved here. And this podcast is brought to you from viewers like you, who have been kind enough to join the Patreon. If you're interested in joining, you get bonus content from this and Let's Watch TV. And we do quarterly Zoom happy hours where I invite other comedians in there to make you laugh, make you cry from laughter, and also just kiki and have a cocktail. The next one's coming up at the end of this month, so if you want to join us, go ahead and join us on the Patreon. It's patreon.com slash Joe Dombrowski. That's patreon.com slash Joe Dombrowski. Guys, life is so wild right now. I applied for another job. I applied for another kindergarten job. Didn't hear back. Had an additional interview from another one. They said they were going to get back to me by the end of the week. They have not. Anxiety is through the roof in this house right now. And I'm about to lose my damn mind. Not only that, we're in the process of buying a house, which I've never done before. And it's insane. There are a million different steps that you have to go through. Oh, not to mention, when you're trying to do it in Seattle, you might as well just pay all of the money and give them your firstborn child. It's have i knew it would be expensive to buy a house but like oh, holy wow like if i went back to my hometown, i could buy a whole subdivision this is insane let's just say thank god morgan's a very successful using quote hands here florist <laughs> Oh, man, I got a hell of a guest here for you this week. I love bringing you diverse guests with different backgrounds and jobs and life experiences. This week, I invite Six on. Six is a drag queen from L.A. with such an incredible, inspirational story. I had followed Six for quite some time, and I was just captivated by her art and loved everything that they posted on Instagram. And then we just kind of got to chatting a little bit. And now she's here on the podcast. So in that I went through this research rabbit hole of six. And wow, just wow. I have learned so much just from talking to her. And I hope that you guys learned some stuff here too. There's a lot that I don't understand about homelessness because I've never been in that situation. And just talking to Six really opened my eyes as to what's going on in my own backyard. And I just think that she's such a positive artist with such a great outlook on life. And I am so excited to have the one and only Six here on the podcast this week. So without further ado, here's the Social Studies Podcast with... Six.
1: Try to catch me howling at the moon.
0: Well, well, I knew this day would come. I I saved it for a very special person. I knew eventually I'd have someone who indulged in the art of a drag on the pod. I'm so excited to welcome to the podcast, the one and only six, six welcome. Hey, what's
1: up? I just want to say, I knew this day would come too, but I had hoped that it would come in the form of a wedding ring and some kind of ceremony. (laughs) this i will take
0: you are some i was literally cracking up last week when i stumbled on you and raya were on live and you two were just like he is so handsome i'm
1: gonna marry him so beautiful well you know what it's like it doesn't hurt that you're like easy on the eye but then at the same time you're such a magical like creative human being who enjoys laughter and making people laugh and i know that that comes from like a great deal of pain in some way. So I just like, I connect with you in such a way. I'm like, God, he makes me laugh and he's deep and he's gorgeous. Fuck, I'm Girl, I literally striking out.
0: You're the same, you are the same way though. Literally you're, first of all, I'm. everyone's gonna go find you after they listen to this podcast. Absolutely stunningly gorgeous, both in the drags and out of the drags. Supermodel of the world, turning heads left and right. So don't come for me with all that on me. That's I mean, you too.
1: I'm definitely trying, you know, I'm definitely trying.
0: So let me tell you this. I have been following you and I became a fan. I want to say RuPaul's Drag Race spoilers page where they were like spoiling who the new cast is. And ironically enough, I want to say it was season six and you were showing up in The Running. And I found you and I was like, oh, this bitch is. This is someone. And that was so long ago. And I've been following you ever since. And then I just, I'm like, why have I never talked to this bitch? She's literally <laughs> captivating. And I slide in your DMs. Sure as shit, we both got Detroit roots. Yeah, 313 all the way, baby. So tell me a little bit about you. You are from Detroit or you have spent a lot of time in Detroit?
1: Well, I ran away to Detroit. I was okay. originally from, I was born in New Mexico. Uh, my mother left New Mexico, went to Colorado, and then I think Ohio was next because I have a great aunt that lives there. And my, my mother was like teenage pregnant. She was pregnant again, like with her. She, so I have two twin brother and sister. I have a twin brother and sister. And um, they were born when my mom was 19. So by the time my mom was 19, she had three of us. And she needed some help. And my great aunt lived in Columbus and was willing to help out with my mother's situation. I lived there fast forward till I was like 14 years old. And I was a part of the Franklin County Children's Services in Columbus. So I was raised a bit in foster care, most of my life in somebody else's home, but a bit in foster care. And um, I just got sick of it. I was like, these adults have no idea what they're doing with my life. So I'm just going to take the reins. I ran away met three drag queens, ran away to Detroit because there was like this wind of like, oh, this group of gays is housing this teenage child. And um, they feared that they would, you know, get in trouble. And I, of course, feared that I could get them in trouble. So I left and went to Detroit and never looked back.
0: And uh, this is a script. When are we going (laughs) to write (laughs) it?
1: I lived there for 10 years. It's where I grew up. It is where I found my circle of friends and my my real belonging in the world at that point in time, I met a guy named Bashar who uh, just took me under his wing, taught me how to do hair. I started working for Matt Cosmetics up there when I was 18. I was a very, very young trainer. It was back in the 90s. You're and um,
0: at, Wait, did you work in a mall? I did, Somerset. Bitch, fucking Somerset. After this is done, we know the same people.
1: Oh, yeah, 100%. No, I worked at Somerset Mall. I was the creative artist for MAC Cosmetics at Somerset Mm -hmm. uh, for Michigan. And then the the position translated into the trainer position for MAC, which you had to reapply. And I reapplied and I became the trainer for Michigan, Ohio, Minnesota.
0: And that's the roots of all your amazing makeup experience then, too.
1: Well, that's definitely the roots of me just not knowing what I was doing, saying okay. I knew what was what I was doing. And just, you know, it's one of those things. And in, in anything, I think in this world, you are asked if you know how to do something, you nod your head. Yes, that you do. And then you go home that night and you learn how to do it. That's what I spent a majority of my life doing.
0: You know, that really I connected that so deeply over I've taught predominantly, I taught for just about 10 years. I'm out of the classroom now, but I did. And um, I taught in a lot of title one buildings, which is a lot of low income families. And I've had countless foster children in and out of my doors. And there's something about a child growing up in foster care where they have this mentality of, this is for me, like I might not trust you or whatever, but like, I gotta make the right decisions for me. So hearing you talk like that as an adult, I immediately go back to so many of my kids where they know these adopt this, these bitches don't have my best interests. So I got to have my own
1: none whatsoever. I mean, back then, I mean, this was the late eighties, early nineties. So for me growing up in foster care and being so open about my sexuality, Mm -hmm. um, I was gay. There was no, like I was questioning it. I might be, I was, you know, just playing around with something. No, I was gay, full blown homosexuality at, uh, I want to say like 11 or 12 years old. So foster care at that time used to put you into 30 day placements and 30 day placements were to protect the home and protect the child. Um, the unfortunate thing with 30 day placements is once every 29 days, you're off into another foster home. Mm -hmm. And so I just got really used to being moved around constantly. It was that push and pull of, please keep me here. That, um, over assertiveness that overachievement uh mentality where i would go in i'd make my room perfect i'd make sure everybody loved me i was always on i was doing a show i was entertaining i was performing i was everything that i was doing in my youth was performative and it was to gain acceptance and to gain somebody's approval of me because i didn't want to move anymore i would get to a place where i'd move into a foster home where i would be like I really love it here, please keep me here. And the system would be like, I'm sorry, we can't. And off again, I would move. So I went through that for many years where people would say, you're safe here, you can lay your head here and rest here easily. And 29 days later, I was off and running with another uh, foster family. So. You know, that was tough for me, but also at the same time, the things that are really difficult for you in life become the most valuable educational experiences for you. I mean, for me now I can talk to anybody about anything. i have communication skills. I am okay with things changing constantly and finding a space of, um, of safety within all of that chaos. I mean, those are the gifts.
0: And it is truly, it's what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. 100%. And 100%. It's, and it's every interaction is a gift. 100. Yeah. What would you say if you were to, because I have a lot of teacher listeners, a lot of teacher listeners who are like us. What would you say to teachers who have foster children in their classrooms? What, what advice would you give to them?
1: I would say, don't pity them. Treat them exactly like you do with every other child. I think one of the biggest turnoffs for me with human interaction is when I tell somebody my story and their first uh, response is, um that must have been so hard it was all i knew you know i just wanted somebody to treat me like the human being that i was so if i showed up for class and i was responsive and i was participating i wanted to be rewarded for that not because i was a foster kid i wanted to be rewarded for the work that i was doing you know i was the winner of my spelling bees i was the lead in my school plays all because of the efforts of my my showing up and my ability to do things and do things well. It never had anything to do with me being in foster care. That being said, I would say to the the teachers that are witnessing fostered children, pay attention to the things that they need a little bit more than everyone else because there are a lot of things that foster kids do out of survival that they need an adult to pay attention to. I needed an adult to reach in and grab me and say, hey, are you okay? Is everything all right? Because there were many times when things just were not right, and I couldn't say anything about it. I was Did you fearful. ever
0: get that adult, someone who said that to you?
1: I never did. That's why I took matters into my own hands.
0: So then when you left and you went up to Detroit, did you have a plan? Did drag Absolutely just sort of happen?
1: Absolutely not. Well, no, drag happened in Columbus. Oh, I oh okay. Three- I met three drag queens uh, when I was 14, 15. It was like in that interim, Uh, about six months. I stayed with uh, Olivia Pantene. She's now since passed, but she's my my drag mother and my inspiration and my my friend. She was really kind to me. She saw something in me that I didn't see in myself. And um, she saw that I was just a kid that wanted to make it. I wasn't going through a really great time at that point in my life. And I needed an adult that reached in and said, hey, what can I do to help you? And she did. She reached in and helped me. I did have a couple of uh, teachers. Uh, Miss Robniak was my Spanish teacher who really like took an interest in me. And I love her um, for doing that. Um, Mr. Clay, who was uh, an incredible third grade teacher who was really hard on me. And I really oh my needed God. that. in my life.
0: choking like, me the fuck up right now.
1: No, seriously. He was super hard on me. He used to call me Austin because he used to call everyone by our last names. And I can still remember him saying, Austin, buckle up. And I used to be like, buckle up. What does that even mean? But I knew he was... He was trying to get me to be better than I was being at the time. And it changed my life. Those are the, I mean, I remember my kindergarten teacher, Mrs. Wise, um, at Crabtree Elementary. She changed my life because she was the first human being that actually was like dead set on making sure that she listened to every word that I said. You never know how you're going to impact a child's life. I think the best thing for a teacher is the fact that you have the willingness to want to do that and then you show up every single day, you never realize the impact you're gonna have on a child, but just showing up every day, that's that's all you gotta do.
0: This is literally, first of all, there's at least 35 people who are driving to work right now listening to this in tears. They're reapplying their wet and wild to go back and <laughs> yes! have the videos. When, when you hear an adult talk about their former elementary school teachers and they can tell you by name and they can tell you what happened, we always say, Kids remember how you made them feel, not what you were not what you were saying, not what you can't, were teaching.
1: Can't tell you exactly, but I can tell you that those people stand out for me in a way that nobody else in history has.
0: It's oh my God, you're incredible. So <laughs> real quick before we hop from Detroit to LA, mm-hmm. tell me a little bit about being Miss Gigi's.
1: I was never Miss Gigi's. Did
0: you compete?
1: I did Miss Rainbow at, Room, was it? I was Miss Rainbow Room.
0: Girl, it's not around anymore.
1: Yeah, no, there's no Rainbow Room, but I was the first Miss Rainbow Room. Um, I wanted that title more than I wanted anything else in life, and I got it. Um, I was young and up and coming, and as fierce as I am now, I was just as fierce then. Oh. Um, but I was really young. And my drag, if I showed you pictures from back then, you wouldn't be able to really differentiate a time difference. But it's been 25 years since I did drag from the first time to the time now. And drag is very different. But I think my style and I think that my ambition with drag and my passion for it is definitely still the same. I have shied away from drag for many, 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 many years because of the way that I was treated in the gay community because I did it. Oh, really? Um, Oh, God, yeah. I mean, back in the 90s, you're doing drag. No gay man wanted to be associated with a drag queen. You were there for entertainment purposes only. I did have a boyfriend at the time, Sean, who was the love of my life. I still say he's the love of my life. I think you only get that one true initial interaction with love the way that you don't understand it. And that was the person that I figured out what love really was unfortunately he was long gone before i actually had a a real grasp on what love was but he was that person that supported me no matter what and loved me doing drag and and showed up to every show and videoed it and helped me with props and helped me with you know um uh doing costuming and stuff like that he was really supportive but when i lost him when he and i no longer were a thing, um, it was really difficult to find somebody else that could take his place or that could hold my hand. And I got really lost in the world of all things gay because of it. I found that a lot of gay men were really repulsed by me doing drag. So I put it in a box, wrapped it up, because you know, coming from where I come from and doing the things that I've done in my life, being loved by one person was much better than trying to be adored by men, many. Mm-hmm. And um, I packed her up in a box and I said, I'm going to do my last show and I never did it again.
0: How many years?
1: How many years did I do it or how many years did I pack her take away? How many years did you take off? Yeah. My last show was in 1999 mm-hmm. and I didn't pick it back up again until 2018.
0: Oh my God. You didn't do drag again 2018?
1: Yeah, I just started doing six. In 2018, April of 2018.
0: Oh, so so first and foremost, she wasn't six. This the like the second coming is six.
1: Yeah, the second coming is six, and so the story goes like this. I started doing drag when I was 14, 15 years old. I was named Veronica Madison. That was my first drag name. Was Veronica from the Archie comics, and Madison from Dolly Madison Donuts. Yeah, we're hillbillies.
0: Um, we love her.
1: <laughs> yeah, and she was fierce. She was everything. But um, I wanted to put her away and I put her away because I, like I said, I wanted to find love and I just didn't love myself enough at the time to be able to stand on my own. So I figured I'd rather find somebody to love me. Waited 18 and a half years, went through many variations of myself, Uh, drug addiction, homelessness, the start and stop of businesses a lot of loss, a lot of loss. I mean, complete ancient ruins and then started over again. And I've done that in so many different ways and so many different aspects of my life. And then I was homeless on the street, um, trying to kick drugs because that's where my life had led was drug addiction and homelessness. And I was asking my higher self, what is it that I can do? Where can I go with my life? What is my purpose? What am I supposed to be doing here? Because I can't do this anymore. This is going to kill me. And it was like a download from the universe. It was like, you're going to get back into doing drag. That was the thing that you found yourself doing when you were younger, that you were the most happiest at. It was the thing that you were successful and you got to incorporate all your creative aspects in your life into one thing. And then I was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to do drag again. What am I going to call myself? I can't call myself Veronica because she's dead. And I don't really like those like double name things. I want to be known as Cher or Madonna. I want to be that kind of a drag queen. And um, my name has six letters in each name, Jeremy, Damien, Austin. That's one thing where six comes up in my life. But in my entire life, six has always been a number that I recognize and stands out. A lot of people will look at the clock and they'll be like, Oh, eleven, eleven, time to make a wish. That's the same thing that happens to me when I see six or a multiple of six. And so when I asked the universe, I said, what am I going to call myself? It was like, you're going to call yourself six, not spelled out. You're going to call yourself the number. You're going to be the first queen that ever calls herself a number. And this is going to be the reason why it's going to be because you got in touch with your higher self or your sixth sense. So I have you know, gone through all the, you know, trials and tribulations of homelessness and recovery where you have to use the five senses to get yourself out of it. But the sixth sense is the one that gets you out of it and keeps you out of it. That spiritual connection, that connection that you have with yourself, that's the thing that's going to keep you there. And so I called myself six. I started talking about my recovery with the public. I started making it known that, yeah, I was a drug addict. Yeah, I was homeless. Yeah, I've done things in my life that I'm not proud of. But I let my public and I let my story hold me accountable. I know that I will never go back to being homeless. I know that I will never be a drug addict again because I have people around me that really want me to be successful in what it is that I'm doing now. And it's not because they just want it for me. It's because I want it so badly for myself. You know, I often say to people, they're like, I really just want it. And I'm like, well, then you got to do it. Yes. You know, life is an action word. It's not just something that you hope for. Life is, life is something you word. have. Yeah, and so you can want it all you want, but the difference between wanting abs and having abs is all the sit-ups you got to do up in between.
0: I cannot wait until the pandy is over and I get down to LA and I want to go to one of your shows and then you're coming to one of my shows, bitch.
1: Oh, I would love to. I'll sit there front row in full high whore drag.
0: Done deal. Done, fucking deal. Okay, oh, yeah. I want to get into. You touched a little bit of kind of like coming out of it, and um, what you're up to now. And you're on. You're up to some incredible things right now, which I cannot wait to talk about. But um, you have a little bit of a mini documentary on YouTube that I watch, and it just sort of, you know, really put me in my place, and really, really had me starting to question everything that I know about homelessness as well, because living in Seattle, uh, very similar to L.A., the homeless population is massive everywhere in the city. And you said a few words where you talked about the one you would go days and days without having human interaction. And the moments Mm -hmm. that you would have someone say, how are you? Were what helped you come to your realization of the sixth sense and what helped you come out of your recovery. What what was it like? being homeless and actually having nobody, and you even show in the documentary the corner where you slept and you used uh, road median as your pillow. Uh, What what is that like? I've never had an interaction to speak to someone like this before.
1: Well, I think think the best thing about this pandemic is everybody who has never been in that situation can put themselves in that situation now Mm -hmm. because you're isolated, you're away from family and friends, Just imagine what you're going through with this pandemic and not being able to show up for work and not being able to make a phone call. That's what it's like. It's about complete removal from everything you know that is human, but you are living a full physical human experience. The pain, dehydration, the hunger, sleeplessness, tired, um, exhaustion. Um, I think one of the things that Uh, somebody said to me recently, they said, Oh, do you get embarrassed? And I said, you can't embarrass me. I've shit myself in a public park and had police remove me from that public park as I was shitting my pants. You can't embarrass me. Take yourself to the fullest level, lowest level of humiliation. And that's what being homeless is like. Mm. It's degrading um, to, to ask anybody for help or to not even be the, you, be able to use the restroom, uh, in a public place because of your appearance or because of the way that you smell. Um, a lot of times I would be like looking for a restroom. And when you're homeless and you're on the street, it's not like you just go to the restroom. You have to like physically seek out a place to relieve yourself. That's so inhumane and so humbling at the same time, because you have to realize that you've gotten yourself to this place where you don't even have the basic needs of a human being.
0: And that is just in, incredible to hear because I encounter homelessness every single day. And just even speaking in this conversation right now, I I I look at these people in such a different way. And not, not that I ever have ever been that person who has totally uh, denied their existence, um, but there are so many individuals on the street who are in the process of their own journey and are not ready to escape it yet. But at one point you started saying and you you're quoted in your documentary saying this which I swear to god is going to be a tattoo on somebody someday. <laughs> you realized that you were changing your goals to meet your behavior and what you needed to do to save yourself was change your behavior to meet your goals. Yeah. When that happened What was your strategy to overcome and to get out of homelessness? And how did you actually get out of homelessness?
1: So I went to a 12-step program. Uh, I started, I I knew that rehabs existed. I didn't realize that rehabilitation was something that you could experience as an adult. I always heard of it when I was in school, when I was younger, that, you know, oh, she went to rehab. I thought that was something that you did in your teenage years. Truth is, you can rehab and rehabilitate at any point in your life, whether you are five years old or you are 500 years old. You have an opportunity to rehabilitate no matter what you're suffering from. There is a place and there is a time for you to rehabilitate if you want to. And I really wanted to. And I knew that I needed help. I didn't ask anybody for money or a place to live when I was staying on the streets, Um, But I did ask this one rehab facility if they would let me come in and get sober. And they said, yeah, 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 we do that sometimes. We don't always do it. It's going to take a while. We have a community bed that we can give you. There was one in North Hollywood that you could go to, and it was a full on uh, program for people who weren't able to afford uh, rehab. But I don't think I could have made it through that. I don't okay. think I could have lived through that. I don't think that I could have kept myself sane going to that particular facility. So I went to the nicest place in West Hollywood. It was called clean with a K and I asked the director of admissions. I said, Hey, I want to get sober. I want to make my life better. How can I do that? They took me in six months after my first initial inquiry
0: again. Um, six.
1: So I was, it was June when I asked if they would give me a bed. And I went there every single day knocking on that door letting them know I was right outside. Whenever they were ready for me, I was gonna be right outside. So I slept, it was on the same street as um, right behind Rage in West Hollywood. And I slept on this ramp behind Rage, which is a gay club in West Hollywood for six months. Until they came out and said, hey, are you ready? And sure enough, when they came out and said, hey, are you ready? I still had a pipe in my hand. And I was like, can you give me one more second?
0: Oh, okay.
1: And they were like, it's now or never. And I was like, okay, I guess I'm ready.
0: And you went and you did it and you seized it.
1: I went and I did it. But here's the problem.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Once I got sober, I was still homeless. There was nowhere for me to go. So I went from rehab Back on the streets. And once again, if you're on the streets, you gotta numb the pain. It is not easy sleeping on the concrete in the cold. I know it's LA, but it gets cold at night. Um, and then of course, you're just stuck in this paranoia that people are after you, people are trying to hurt you. There's just this awareness that you have where you're like, I need to stay awake. And so I started relapsing again, and that relapse quickly led me right back into the rooms of, of my 12 step program. I started sleeping on the steps. There's a, a morning meeting at the recovery center uh, over here in West Hollywood. It's called the log cabin. Mm -hmm. And there's, you know, four or five steps going up to the log cabin. I would sleep there every single night because they had a morning meeting that would open up at six 30 in the morning. So I could get coffee and I would attend this morning meeting and then I would attend all the meetings that were there throughout the day. Mm -hmm. And eventually I just got to the place where that was my safety. That was where I was going to meet my friends. That was where I was going to learn and finally get a hold of the sobriety thing. And, um, I got sober for a year and a couple months and then my grandmother passed away.
0: Oh man. And
1: when my grandmother passed away, she was the only thing that I really knew at the time as family. And she watched me go through all the variables of, relapse and recovery, homelessness and not being homeless. And when I lost her, I needed that as a as a as an excuse to go get fucked up. And I used that as an excuse to go get fucked up and I relapsed. So even after a year and a couple months of being sober, I made a choice to go back out again. And then it got really dark and every, like the darkness was darker than it had ever been. And I said, no more, I'm not gonna do it. I was homeless again. That's when I asked, what should I do with my life? And that's when the six came into my life. That's when it was like, this is what you're going to do. And I just listened. I showed up every since and I stayed away from drugs and alcohol every single day.
0: How did you get back on your feet professionally?
1: I worked my fucking ass off. I couldn't go back into makeup because I didn't have any makeup. I had no gear. I had no brushes. I had lost everything in the fire, if you will. Um, And I had nothing. Um, So I asked somebody in uh, recovery in one of the 12 step programs. I said, Hey, you own a nursery and they own a nursery right up here on uh, Sunset and Highland. And I said, do you have any work for me? And he said, yeah. I can, um, I'm starting to build a nursery. Do you know how to build anything? And I was like, yep. (laughs) Again, (laughs) yes, I know how, go home and learn. And so I grabbed a hammer and some nails, learned how to use a tape measure. And I built the greenhouse that is right there on Highland and Sunset. I made a lot of money working, making $20 an hour and started finding ways to get myself a room every night. Then I got myself a, a room in an apartment. And that room in an apartment landed me into my own apartment. And um, then financial situations happened. I still stayed sober, managed to sleep on couches. And then it was about a year and a half ago that I got my very own apartment. I've only been doing six for two, two and a half years. So for the first year and a half of me doing six, I was homeless, sleeping on the streets, running from couch to couch, Um, sleeping on Rhea's couch, sleeping on my assistant at the time's couch. I mean, I was determined to make it, but I showed up to every gig on time and uh, always looked the best that I possibly could look while I was making costumes.
0: And we're going to say this, note to your shade to anybody else, one of the best looking fucking bitches. I got to tell you, bitch, those LA girls girls are good. You're great. Thank you. You're great. Thank you. So you make your own shit too.
1: I design most everything that I wear. I won't say that I make it all, um, but I definitely have an aesthetic. I know exactly what colors I'm going to wear. I know exactly what the best fit is for my body. I'm not going to say that I invented the faux hawk, but I think I'm the one that it looks best on. Let's
0: be honest, (laughs) because after this, I'm going to ask you how to make one of those, because that's some shit, girl.
1: I mean, I just have always been really attracted to really powerful women. I'm obsessed with them. I'm obsessed to every woman that's been able to be strong enough to stand in front of a camera and get her picture taken completely nude. That is power to me. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm impressed with women that are able to stand in front of a group of men and educate them on something. I'm impressed with a woman that's able to tell her husband, no. I am really in awe of powerful, strong
0: women. And I, I mean, you are one too because you've overcome all of this and now you're doing... Really big projects. You're currently working on HBO's We're Here. Um Which as, is
1: just a miracle.
0: But now, okay. Your position on the show, you're one of the many makeup artists, or you are designated to one specific person.
1: Well, I'm designated to Eureka. Okay. So the story is this. Eureka um had seen me working at the Abbey. I met Eureka on season nine's promo shoot for RuPaul's Drag Race. Oh, so she's on the show. And then, she was on the show. Okay. She was doing her promo shoot, the one that comes out with all of them. And uh, I was like, just drawn to her energy. She reminded me so much of where we came from. Yeah. Those people just very real and like, you know, small town girl in a big city. And I was just drawn to her energy. I loved her so much. And um, I remember looking at her during that promo shoot. And I said, one day I'm going to do drag again. And she was like, oh, work, Mary, they you said know, you weren't I'm even sure in the
0: gig. you were you were you were just working the brushes. You weren't even in the gig.
1: I was severely homeless. I was borrowing someone else's hair gear so that I could do these promo shoots, make five hundred dollars and then try to make something better for my life after that. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. And uh, I just fell in love with her. So our relationship has grown since her season nine promo shoot. Um, I saw her again on her season 10 promo shoot. And then our friendship just continued to evolve and get closer and closer and closer. I started doing drag. She started coming to the shows and being like, work, bitch, you're really doing something here. And I was like, I told you, are you proud of me? You know, she's kind of uh, been like my my little big sister. Yeah. And in the fact that she just shows up for me you know, she's, she moved to West Hollywood. She started coming to the Abbey, seeing me perform every Wednesday night at Ash Wednesdays with Raya. And, um, one day she got an opportunity and she said, Hey, you interested in doing makeup with me? And I was like, yeah, I would love to. I painted her before. She looked amazing. And, um, I still didn't have gear. I still didn't have makeup gear. I had the stuff that I was using to make my face work, but I had nothing. I had no, no sponsorships, no, you know, real makeup that I want to use. There's makeup that you can buy and then there's makeup you really want to use. Sometimes those things aren't always the same thing, right? Um, but, uh, I was doing the best with what I got. And I think that anybody listening, that's all you can do. You can just do the best with what you've got, but you really got to know that you're doing your best. When you look in the mirror at night, you really got to look at yourself and go, yeah, I did my fucking best.
0: And I feel like you are because you wouldn't, you wouldn't be working on a show like that if you weren't putting your best foot forward. And the work, this whole, this whole show, first <laughs> of all, for the girls listening at home, this show is necessary, monumental, and so much deeper than when you walk up into the drag show with your bachelorette party, bitches. This yeah. is the real sauce. Yeah. Working on a show like that, with such deep rooted stories, what does it do for you as a person and as an artist?
1: Well, as a person, it just solidifies the decisions that I've made in my life and how, how drag has really transformed my life. Why, if it has been so transformative for me and so uplifting and so monumental as a human being to have it be part of my life, why wouldn't it have that same effect on other people? So being able to witness people's transformations in such a very quick span of time is, I mean, I'm honored to be not only a part of it, but to really take place and witness it happen because there is a psychological thing that happens to someone when they get to put on this mask of of a human being or transform into this other being. And they realize that they can do anything they want as long as they feel their best. It goes hand in hand, feeling good, looking good, changing the world, changing your life. It all goes hand in hand.
0: I love it. And I mean, it's, it's, it couldn't be more obvious with your message and with the show's message. I feel like you were a perfect person to be working on that.
1: Well, you know, I think that It's really easy to work with your family, but it can sometimes be a difficult situation when you work with family or friends. Mm -hmm. Um, Eureka is a soulmate, if you will. She's somebody who came into my life when I needed her the most. She's somebody that I know I came into her life when she needed me the most. And we look at each other as equals now because of what we mean to each other in our lives she transformed my life. You know, I was watching this movie the other day of this woman who just wanted to get to Antarctica. She was just, anything she could do to get to Antarctica, uh, she was gonna do. She was gonna be manipulative. She was gonna, you know, use people. She was going to try to cheat the system. And ultimately she just had to tell people this is where she wanted to go. Eureka is that gateway for me. She's that person that I said, I wanna get to Antarctica. And she's been helping me get there ever since. Um, She also said to me, I want to get to Antarctica and I'm using Antarctica as a metaphor. But um, I know that she needed me on that show to be her sister and to be her friend, to tell her when she didn't look right or when things were, you know, not so good. She needed a real friend at that moment when somebody was going to say, sis, maybe you could try it this way. Mm -hmm. She needed somebody to really be her friend and. I am her friend. I love that woman, that person, that being, that creature with my entire soul. And there's nothing more in the world that I want for her than to be successful and to see, again, witness all of her dreams and aspirations come true. And I think something happens in that relationship where you just, it's a give and take. She wants for me the same successes that I want for her.
0: I love that. This has been Absolutely incredible, but before we go, you mm-hmm. do have some new music coming out. You have a song. I do,
1: I'm gonna be a fucking recording artist.
0: This is incredible. So you have Tuck It coming out that you've recently worked on with um, the fabulous Caswell and Ray Latre.
1: Yeah, Caswell the- and Ray Latre. Caswell is a gay icon. He is somebody that I watched grow, like growing up into my, you know, current position. He's somebody that I was like, wow, he's doing really cool things. I mean, he's an amazing person.
0: So when he came out with ice cream truck, I was well beyond obsessed. And I was in Chicago at the time and I went to go see him at one of the bars there. And I was like getting my life. I was like the one gay who really knew what was up. And uh, I took one step onto the stage, which is where I learned, don't you ever fucking walk onto somebody else's stage. He stopped, he's like, get the fuck off my stage. I was like, oh fuck, oh fuck. (laughs) Oh, no!
1: Drink, drink oh, less, Joe. Drink less. Yeah. <laughs> hey, you know what? It's I th- my those, life. Are in- those are educational, informative moments. You and if you don't take mistake. it personal, yeah, you don't take it personal you grow from it.
0: So tell me about the song.
1: Well, it's called Tuck It and it is based on my experience with Raya and Caswell at the Abbey on Ash Wednesdays. We had a night there every single week. Uh, pre pandemic. Mm-hmm. And um, it was one of those gigs where I started making a little bit more money than I was normally making. Um, and I started getting seen as a queen and, and started making just a name for myself. So I'm the reason why that song is happening because I remember looking at Raya one night, this, so it's a parody. Okay. And um, the song came up with me listening to the words and changing the lyrics while we were in our environment and Rhea was like bitch that's fabulous and every time that song came on i would sing the lyrics and eventually she started singing them back to me the ones that i had created and um it's just very quick but uh i said to her i said i really want to make that a thing can we can I at least try to do a song with you? You know, yeah. Ray is a recording artist. She's recorded with Willem. She's done shit on her own. She's, you know, notorious for making, you know, incredible music in the gay world. And she said, yes. And um, I said, I want it to be about our experience and our journey at the Abbey. And she was like, yeah, girl. So all the lyrics are basically just commemorative of everything we went through at the Abbey and Caswell was one of the best DJs that we had working there. And so, of course, we couldn't have done it without him. And I'm so excited. It comes out January 22nd. And um, I think it's the best song on the album, personally.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I can't wait to hear it. And I'm sure everyone else can't wait to hear it. Where can people find it when it comes out on the 22nd?
1: It'll be on all platforms. It'll be on Spotify. I'm going to have a song on iTunes, Mom.
0: Yes, girl. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I love it. Six. This has been unbelievable. We were meant to meet and we did. Thank you so much for coming on the social studies podcast. I, you know what? I'm already looking forward to having you as a second time guest girl.
1: Absolutely. Let's do it.
0: Hey, you guys, thank you so much for joining me on the Social Studies Podcast. Yet again, I'm absolutely loving doing this for you guys. Do me a favor. Go ahead and text the word pod, P-O-D, to one three one three 251 1036 That'll put you right into the podcast group so we can text and so we can kiki and we can do all that. But I want to hear your suggestions. Who do you want to see on? What do you want me to talk about more? What do you want me to talk about less? Let me know. And also, go ahead. You can subscribe and become a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com slash That's patreon.com. slash Dudzinski I love you guys so much and we'll see you next week. Bye. Try to catch me howling out tomorrow. you guys know this podcast is brought to you from viewers like you who subscribe to the Patreon I love and appreciate each and every one of you who have subscribed there so thank you for that and thank you for keeping the podcast going you can become a Patreon subscriber too by visiting patreon.com slash Joe Dombrowski that's patreon.com slash Joe Dombrowski and you will get a ton of bonus content from this podcast and Let's Watch TV and little prizes and perks along the way, not to mention Zoom happy hours where we can kiki, laugh together, do all of the things. So I'd love to see you over there at patreon.com slash Joe